After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 99% of the decisions that you make in life are no-brainers. We all woke up this morning and we chose to clothe our body, and I'm glad that we did. <laughs> but it's the 1% of decisions that kind of determine the direction that we go in our life. You make decisions all the time that feel like they have no consequence, but there's a few decisions that have great consequence and have less clear answers. Where do I live? What job do I take? Where do I go to school? Who do I marry? Who do I date? These are the types of questions that require what we call wisdom. They require us to think more in depth about what we really want in life and how we want our life to go. This week, we're continuing our study in Genesis. We're looking to cover chapter 13 and 14. We're speeding up a little bit as we go through the, the narrative. And what we see in this passage, we just read the very end of it, but we're going to go through the entire story. What we see in this passage is that some decisions that seem very obvious to us do not have truly obvious answers. Many of the decisions that seem obvious to us are not the best decisions that we can make. Because there's two ways of looking at the world. You can look at the world from the world's perspective or you can look at the world from God's perspective. And when you look in the two different perspectives, you see two different ways of going many times with this 1% of things. Sometimes the obvious choice is not the best choice. And so as we go through this passage, my prayer for you today, church family, is that God would help you to have wisdom. That he would help you to learn how to make wise, gospel-centered, faith-influenced decisions instead of just following the obvious wisdom of the world. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see that Jesus did many surprising things. Jesus was a religious leader. Everybody would acknowledge that. Yet, when you see a religious leader, you usually would think that he would be hanging out with other religious leaders, talking with the religious leaders. And he did some of that, 
but it was almost always antagonistically. He almost always was criticizing them. Who did he enjoy spending his, whole, his time with? It's surprising. It's not obvious to us. It's the prostitutes and the sinners and the tax collectors, the crooks. That's who Jesus was spending his time with. Jesus also, as he's being led to the cross, had many opportunities to get out of the situation, both in a supernatural fashion, calling down a legion of angels to come and remove him from the cross, or just in a worldly fashion. He could have just lied or said something different. Yet, the obvious choice is not always the best choice. If you put us in that situation, many of us, would choose to preserve life over giving it up the way that he did. Friends, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, you know this, but to follow Jesus means that you're going to make decisions that look odd to the rest of the world because Jesus makes decisions that look odd to the rest of the world. Just let that sink in for just a moment. To follow Jesus means that you will make decisions that look odd to the rest of the world. But it is the best, most God-glorifying, satisfying, life-impacting kind of way to live. So let's dive into this passage. Verse 1, chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, open it up. Not, the verses aren't going to be on the screen. So open up your Bibles. We're going to be walking through it. Uh, Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. This is what it says. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now I need to catch you up. Why is Abram in, in, in uh, Egypt? If you were here last week, you heard this story. But God, call, God called out to Abram, said, I will be your God. You will be my people. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll give you a great land, and I will bless you. He gave them this threefold promise of a nation, a land, and a blessing. And so he said, follow me, go to the promised land that I will show you. And so Abram starts to travel, but when he gets there, there's a famine in the land. And so Abram decides to doubt God's promise that he's going to take care of him at all times. And he goes down into Egypt, which is seen as a place that is famine proof because the river Nile runs through Egypt and it's a river, a very major river. And so they, it's very fertile. And so usually if there's a famine in the land, Egypt is one of the first places that people go to. Now, when Abraham went, or Abram, uh, as he's known in both places, his name hasn't changed yet. It's Abram in this story. It will be Abraham soon. Give me forgiveness for misspeaking often. Um, as he gets there, he looks around and he sees his wife, and she's a looker, <laughs> and, and that's the biblical term for it. And uh, he says, look, when we get in there, um, they're going to see you, and they're going to kill me and take you into, into Pharaoh's harem because that's the only way to deal with us. So when we go into the land of Egypt, I want you to tell them that you're actually my sister, which isn't technically a lie. You are my half-sister. Just tell them that half-truth. And then they'll take you into the harem. They won't kill me. And so what Abraham does is kind of a scoundrel, slimy way of being. He's selfishly self-preserving himself at the expense of his wife. And she is taken into the harem. But before anything serious happens, uh, there's like a plague that breaks out essentially. And Pharaoh realizes that something is not right here and that this woman is actually Abraham's wife in addition to being his half-sister at this point. And so the, he lets them go and he sends them out with all of their wealth still. 
And so that's where we're picking up in the story today. They're coming out of Egypt into the land of the Negev, which is a uh, desert just in the south part of the Canaan area. And um, as he's coming out of there, it says he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him. Now we haven't talked about Lot much, but Abram's nephew Lot is with him. And uh, basically what you need to know about Lot so far is that he's been shrewd enough to know who to hitch his trailer to. You know, uh, there, there's a lot of wisdom in just like picking the right person to, to go through life with. And so Lot has kind of chosen pretty well at this point. He's hitched his trailer to Abram and he has been blessed immensely in the process. He also has become a very wealthy man. He also has an entourage. Uh, Abram has a huge group of people that are following him around now. Just because he is so wealthy, it demands the support of so many people to, to take care of all of his wealth. And verse two, it says it like this. It says, now Abram was, was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He's not traveling alone. He's got this entourage. Verse 3, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the, at the first. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So four verses ago, Abram was giving up his wife to Pharaoh, calling her just his sister. And now he's back rededicating himself to the Lord. I think it's significant. He's back to where he was at first. He's back to where he started. He's back at the altar that he made when God first called him into the land. And what does he do? He calls upon the name of the Lord. When we read the Bible, we often think that the Bible is full of people to copy, to imitate. But Abram is a complex man. He's not always good. He's not always bad. He's a lot like you and I. And so in that way, maybe there is something to imitate. As we find ourselves going through life's journeys where we make selfish decisions that serve only ourselves, maybe you are just a, a royal screw-up this week. You've just messed something up. I think that there's always hope. Because here we have Abram doing something that's really terrible with giving away his wife. But now he's calling upon the name of the Lord. Friends, it's never too late to call upon the name of the Lord. No matter where you are, it's never too late to call upon the name of the Lord. Some of us need to be doing that today. We need to be renewing our faith, going back to where we were at the beginning. Don't you remember those days when the, first, when the Lord first called you? Maybe you haven't had it. Maybe you have. Many of us have. Think about that and rekindle your love for the Lord. Call upon his name once again. Verse 5, Lot went with Abram. Also, uh, who, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So he's become this wealthy man. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Oh, no. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. This is the biblical pr principle of mo money, mo problems. It pops up a few times in the scripture. And we have a problem. The land can't even, they're so rich the land can't even support both of them. And so something has to happen. They have to split up in some way. One thing that it says in the verse after that, verse 7, it says that their, that their servants, their hired workers, are getting into fights with one another. There's just not enough space in this area. And so this is what happens. Abram, verse 8, Abram says to Lot, let there be no strife between you and I, uh, between you and me. 
and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We're related. You're my nephew. And so he's like, yeah, you're my nephew. Um, is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now that's a really interesting move. Because what Abram is doing is he's like, hey nephew, you pick. You pick. Look out there. You, you can go wherever you want. Where you go, I'll go the opposite direction. You get to pick the best land. He's giving him dibs. Abram doesn't have to do this. It's within his right as the older one, as the one who's driving this caravan, who has the, the lots trailer is on Abram. Remember, it's not the other way around. Abram had full authority to make that decision, but he chooses to let Lot make the decision. It really highlights the change in Abram that we've come to in just a few short verses. He's gone from slimy schemer to generous uncle. He's changed a lot. By call, we have this one verse in the middle, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and we see his attitude and his disposition change. I think if you had gone to Genesis 12, Abram, he would have made a very different decision. He would have said, I'm going to the right, and you're going to the left lot. But no, this is a man who knows that it's best not to serve himself, but to serve others. That sometimes the obvious decision isn't the best one. Because the obvious decision is almost always to serve yourself, to choose the best thing for me. And the best decision is almost always to serve others, to look at what's best for your neighbor. Jesus teaches us the same principle over and over again. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. Now th this is a bit of hy hyperbole, but it's interesting. He says, it was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Then it has parentheses. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. When Lot looked out, the choice was obvious. He can choose desert, wilderness kind of area. Maybe there's something out there. Or he can choose this area that's lush, like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of Eden. He can go back east. What we've been saying, east is away from the Lord or west toward the Lord. Lot chooses away from the Lord toward what is the obvious decision. I'm going to take the place where the river is running through it, the place that looks famine-proof, like the Nile. And then the author puts that really foreboding uh, statement in there. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He kind of is hinting like, hey, probably not the best choice for Lot. Uh, he's giving you a little, little hint in there, but we're not to that point in the story yet. Come in a couple weeks, we get to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the number one sermon that you want to preach in, in Somerville. It's just like a, a joyous one. Um, that's going to be hard. Um, Mike, what are you doing that weekend? <laughs> the obvious choice is not always the best choice. Lot chose the place that looked like Eden or Egypt. There's a river and it's green. But Lot's decision was made upon worldly wisdom and not godly wisdom. Friends, you will be faced with all kinds of decisions like this. Things that seem really obvious, 
but yet the obvious answer isn't the best answer. Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things. And so that means that the worldly wisdom of follow your heart is a deceitful tidbit of wisdom. It is not something that will lead you into good places. That will lead you away from the Lord. Always, in many different ways, unless your heart is after the Lord. Unless your heart is after the Lord. But it's really hard to tell many times. Maybe you're offered a job with double the pay. The answer seems obvious. But then you end up in a morally questionable situation or away from your family far more than you would prefer. Maybe you're always looking for that next place to look, to live, to move to. You long to live in, in New York City or live internationally, live in France, live in, in LA, live in San Francisco, wherever it might be. It might be obvious to you that you need to be there. But is that serving self or serving others? Have you considered what your heart is wanting and why it's wanting it? Megan's family has this saying that, uh, you know, it's just really bright and cheery. It says, uh, the grass is always brown and crunchy. (laughs) And it's true. You'll get there eventually and you won't like what you want. It's like a dog chasing a squirrel. What's it going to do when it catches the squirrel and it scratches his eyes out? It's not going to enjoy it very much. Maybe you're looking for that perfect someone to date or to marry, but all your non-negotiables are worldly qualities and not godly qualities. Here are a few questions to ask yourself when you're making those 1% questions. Does this serve myself or others more? Does this serve myself or others more? Here's another one. What new idols and temptations will this expose me to? Anytime you have one of those questions where it's like, it requires a lot of discernment, write them down. Think about it. What new idols or temptations is this going to expose me to? When you're making a big life change, some things to think about before you get into it. It was obvious that this was the better land, yet Abram denies himself and gives it away. When you're given that opportunity to make a decision, or I can take the better, or you can take the better, but I'm going to let you choose. It probably means you're going to take the the worse one. How does Abram have the strength to do that? Why does Abram have the strength to let Lot take the better land? It comes down to this. His eyes were not on the land of this world, but on the promised land of God. God had just promised him that he would make him into a great nation. God had promised him that he would give him a great land and that he would be with him. And so Abram, in the security of that promise from God, can step back and say, Lot, do whatever you want. God's got me. God's got me. I can give you the better land because God's got me. Abram believed God, and so he let Lot take the good portion now because he knew that God had his back. Let me give you two examples of other people doing this. The first one is Jesus, okay? It's always good to have an example with Jesus uh, in it here. But when Jesus began his ministry, 
He was baptized and he was led out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. And at the end of his 40-day fast, Satan appeared to him. And he gave him three different temptations. But one of those temptations, Satan led Jesus up to the top of a mountain. And he said, look out. You see all of that land. It's like almost this Mufasa moment that he has. You see all the land? I will give it to you. All you have to do is bend your knee to me. Now that seems like a simple decision, an obvious decision, if you will. Yet Jesus says, my eyes are not on this land, but on the kingdom of God. If you were given the choice to have everything you ever wanted or the kingdom of God, take the kingdom of God. The other example that I want to give you this morning is uh, Dr. King. As you know, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I find this to be a really interesting holiday because Dr. King was a Christian pastor and we take, and, and especially in our area, he's, he's universally revered in our world. But yet, everything he's doing was out of a deep conviction and faith in Christ. And that's not always universally revered in our world. When we celebrate Dr. King, we think about his humanitarian efforts, his civil rights efforts. But rarely does the world think about the faith that fuels this man and why he does the things that he does. On the night that before Martin Luther King Jr. died, he gave a speech. It was actually on my birthday, April 3rd, before I was born, in my hometown in Memphis, Tennessee. And he lets us in behind the curtain as to why he's able to do all that he's able to do. I just want to quote this for you. You've probably heard it before, but it's so beautiful. I watched it with my son this week as he was talking about, he came home talking about MLK, and I was like, oh yeah, they're not going to teach you this in school. Let's watch him talk. Uh, so I pulled up a sermon, and uh, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he's preaching, and uh, I mean, he's preaching. I don't know what I am doing, but he's preaching. <laughs> And uh, they're talking back, and Shepard's like, why are they talking back? I'm like, they do that in some churches, son. (laughs) And uh, this is what he says. He says, and then I got to Memphis. And some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out. What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't care what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountaintop and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may, ne- I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. This is a man who knows he's about to die. And he is unconcerned, unwavering, unmoved. The obvious choice to preserve your life. Don't take the trip to Memphis. They were calling in bomb threats for his airplane. They had to check his airplane for hours before he went to Memphis. 
They knew it was going to happen, but he did not care. He was committed to the cause. And what fueled his ability to be committed to the cause, the metaphorical promised land of racial equality and equity, and the literal promised land, the supernatural promised land of our kingdom with God, of heaven, the kingdom to come. What is fueling him? His eyes have seen the future. He knows what's waiting for him. His faith is in God. He's not afraid of dying. He has ultimate confidence that he could do the right thing because he had a promise of eternal life with Christ. He could keep fighting for the promised land, metaphorical, physical, because he had his eyes on the promised land of heaven. Friends, if you want to get to those 1% decisions, and you want to make a decision that could change the world, your eyes have to be on the promised land of God. As you focus on the promise of God, your life starts to matter to you a little less, and his kingdom matters a little bit more. Lot and Abraham, they have to split ways. And as they split ways, Lot goes <laughs> to his good land. And at that moment, Abram has his own Mufasa moment. And God speaks to Abram and he tells him to look around. Everything you see will be yours. I find it amazing. In this moment where Abram exercised his faith, the Lord immediately spoke and said, good. <laughs> let me reaffirm my promise. Let me remind you one more time. I'm not going to let you down. It's all going to be yours. Now, that's chapter 13. Chapter 14. It's like you're watching one of those movies and you're like in the middle of this really intimate uh, moment and then it's like a cutscene. Because chapter 14 starts with a cutscene. Basically what happens um, is we get immediately taken to this narrative that's violent. There's an epic war between five kings on one side and four kings on the other. The five kings of unpronounceable names versus the four kings that are more powerful with even more unpronounceable names <laughs> against one another. And they're battling. And basically what happened is the five kings with unpronounceable names that live in the Dead Sea area have stopped paying their taxes to the four more powerful kings that live in the east. And so the more powerful kings are like, we're going to go and take our taxes. And so they come and they invade. And there's this big war, and what ends up happening is Lot has made his home among the five kings of less power with unpronounceable names, and he's been taken hostage. Lot himself has been taken as a spoil of war. He is a wealthy man, and so these kings of the east have taken him hostage. Well, the word gets to Abram eventually, and Abram realizes, aha, that's why I didn't make that decision. Uh, Lot made a bad decision, but he says, I'm still going to save him. And so what does Abram do? He goes and gathers. It tells us explicitly exactly how many people he gathers. He gathers 318 men. That's not very many if you're taking on five kings. But this is one of the first times in a pattern of many times when the Lord uses a small number of people to humble the great. And so Abram gets his 318 men. They go all the way north past Dan, past Damascus. It's 120 miles-ish. It's going to take weeks. <laughs> you know, it's a long travel. They get up there. They, they kick the king's butts, and they take Lot back. 
That's basically the end of the story. It's a very brief kind of, of uh, story, summarization uh, here. Sorry, I'm not very good at English sometimes. And so Abram comes back down with Lot and all of his possessions and everything. He saved the day. And when he gets back down, it's just taken a few sentences. It's taken weeks, actually, to happen. But he gets back down to where he started, where Lot's from. And uh, two kings come out to greet him. And the first king is the king of Sodom. He's already been mentioned. He was on the five kings' side, the, the ones that got uh, taken over. And then there's another king. So, so far we've had nine kings, and now, boom, tenth king. Uh, ten is a very significant number, biblically speaking. We have a tenth king, and it's the king of Salem, this mysterious shadowy figure whose name is Melchizedek. And they come out. Uh, Salem is almost certainly an ancient name for the city of Jerusalem, the holy city. And so the king of Jerusalem comes out to greet him along with the king of Sodom. And the word Melchizedek means uh, king of righteousness. uh, Salem, or Jerusalem, king of Salem, means peace. And so we have this guy coming out. He has the name of king of peace and king of righteousness along with the king of Sodom. They come out to, the, to greet him. And when they get there, Melchizedek, uh, this new king, he brings a feast with him. He brings bread and wine to greet Abram. And he's throwing this feast, and he offers Abram a blessing. In verse 19, and he blesses him and says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now it's revealed in this little blessing that Melchizedek worships the one true God, which is surprising to us. As we're reading this narrative, one assumption that we kind of have is that Abram is the last one. He's the only one who knows the Lord most high. But here, Abram recognizes that Melchizedek is talking about the same God that he worships. Because Abram says, I'm going to give you a tenth of everything. You've blessed me. I'm going to bless you back. I'm going to give you back an offering because you've blessed me so much. He's so moved. This Melchizedek guy, really interesting guy. This is all that he appears in narrative form. The only place. It's like four verses. If you were reading the Bible, you wouldn't think twice about this guy until you get to him again in Psalm 110 written by David a thousand years later. And he pops up again. You're like, that's a little curious. I think I might remember that guy. He showed up in four verses. And then, if you're a Christian, you're going to get to Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews devotes like four chapters to Melchizedek. Like just an intense amount of time on a very minor prophet, a very minor priest in the Old Testament. A thousand years later. So over, we have a thousand years until he's brought up again in the Old Testament. And then a thousand more years and he's brought up again in the New Testament. Let's turn over to Hebrews 5. You can't understand this guy unless you look at at Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. And um, I don't have enough time to give you the entire PhD dissertation on uh, Melchizedek. There's been many written. Um, He's an interesting fellow. And so if you have your Bible, just look with me at Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to bring up one thing first. It says this in chapter 5, verse 9. 
And being made perfect, he, which is Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Praise God, I'm not the only one having a hard time. The author of Hebrews also notices, it's hard to explain this guy. Stick with me, you're a smart bunch. Uh, You're going to be able to figure this out as I go. And you're less hard of hearing than his crew. He says, it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's it's currently 1040. Hopefully your dullness of hearing hasn't quite set in yet. Let's keep going. Look at chapter 7. He kind of gives us some background information. He gets to chapter 7. He starts explaining who this guy is. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning. So he does it too. You know, it's still Abram. He calls him Abraham. It's okay. Uh, Returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is, king of peace. Who else do we know that meets that description? But Jesus of Nazareth, king of peace and king of righteousness. Verse three, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now this is cause for some really fantasaical interpretations of who Melchizedek is. Sometimes people say that he's an angel. Sometimes people say he's pre-incarnate Christ because it says he doesn't have father or mother, no genealogy. And I think that what the author of Hebrews is saying isn't that he's literally an angel or literally doesn't have father or mother. It's just saying it's not recorded. We don't know who he is. So we can imagine that he's this person that goes on forever because we don't know that he doesn't. He's a normal human, in my belief, but he's meant to make us think of Jesus. We can think of him as a priest who goes on forever, as Jesus goes on forever. Now, to understand the rest of this chapter, you have to understand a lot of the Old Testament. I can't explain everything in this passage in this short amount of time. But if you stick with us for like 10 years, you'll eventually understand this completely, okay? Uh, I'll just keep preaching through the Old Testament, keep preaching the New Testament, and we'll get it all. Um, To understand Melchizedek, though, you have to understand the Old Testament priesthood. And priests in the Old Testament are meant to come from one specific tribe, Levi. The only problem is that Levi hasn't been born yet. Levi is like a great-grandchild of, um, of Abram. He's, he still hasn't been born. There are no priests at this point in that kind of way. But these priests, they also only serve terms. They serve 30-year terms. They serve from the time they're 20 until the time they're 50. Now we have Melchizedek. And if you're an ancient Hebrew person reading Genesis, you know all these rules about priests. But you have Melchizedek, and he's a different kind of priest. He doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. He has no genealogy So we can imagine him serving an unending term. He has no end because he just goes back home after this one little passage. If you were to ask the random person on the street, if you were to go out and say, how does someone draw close to God? How would they respond? Well, most would probably say, well, I don't believe in God. But then if you did get someone that believes in God, usually they would say some type of combination of be a good person, do the right things, go to church, 
If they're a Catholic person, they might tell you to go to the priest, to confess your sins, to pray. All of these things are things that they would tell you to draw near to God because they feel so obvious. But the obvious thing is not always the right thing. How would an ancient Jewish person respond to that question, how do you draw near to God? Well, the first thing that they would probably tell you about is the Torah. They would tell you to follow the laws of the Torah. But then you better believe that an ancient Hebrew person, if you tell them, how, if you ask them, how do you draw near to God, they're going to say, God lives in the temple. It's his footstool. And so if you want to draw near to God, you need to go to the temple. And really, only one person is able to draw near to God in the way that you're really thinking of drawing near to God, and that's the high priest one day a year on the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur. They go behind the curtain that separates the presence of God from the presence of people. They go into the most holy of places and they offer a sacrifice there so that God will be pleased with us, so that we can draw near to God. They go on our behalf into those places. That's what they would tell you about. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us is that there is a new kind of priest, a different kind of priest. He's saying, look, that old religious priesthood, it doesn't work. We need to set it aside. We need a new priest. We need a whole new system, one like Melchizedek, not the Levitical priest, but better. And he points us to Jesus, verse 18, chapter 7. He says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. This old priesthood is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. How do we draw near to God? We have a great high priest who has entered the holiest places. God himself has made his habitat with humanity. He didn't just offer a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. And as he hung on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin, not just once, but eternally, the curtain that separates the, pre the presence of God from the presence of God's people was torn in half. God dwells with his people through Christ. That's what this is all about. So we need a new priest, one like Melchizedek, but better, one who is an, offers an atoning sacrifice, an eternal sacrifice. One who doesn't just go before God for us once, but goes before us God, before God forever. Who's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Who's borne our sins. And who has risen victoriously. We can go to God anytime we want because we have a great high priest whose name is Jesus. He stands before us righteous on our behalf. And he's torn down the curtain so that we can know God, this is good, good, good news. Friends, this is an invitation for you today. Maybe you've been trusting in yourself. Maybe you've been trying to find ways to get to God through your own strength, reading your Bible, good thing, doing good things, being a good person, being a moral person, but you haven't been going to Jesus. Today is a day for you to call upon the name of the Lord. 
to renew your faith, to go back to where you were at the beginning, or you haven't ever called on the name of the Lord, and today is the day you get to call upon his name and say, I can't do this myself. I can't draw near to the Lord in my own strength. I need Christ. Come to Christ today. It's an invitation. He can usher you to the promised land. He has gone to prepare a room for you in his father's house. And one day he's coming again. And the meek will inherit the earth. Each week we take a sacred meal which reminds us of the second coming of Christ. It's like an appetizer to the great feast Just as Melchizedek brought out bread and wine, we bring you some bread and wine here today to be reminded that the good life is with Christ. And so as we come and receive this meal, we're reminded of the day that Jesus inaugurated on the day that he was betrayed, the night before he died, when he tore the loaf in two and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we participate in this meal, he's with us in a special kind of way. We get to draw near to him. We get to set our eyes on the prize once again of the promised land to be reminded of who he is. So church, let's stand as we sing and as we close. Father, as we come to the sacred meal, we pray that you will be made much of, that uh, our hearts will be in line with your heart. And God, that we would draw near to you. We know that this is an invitation to draw near to you. We want your presence. We want to set our eyes on you to be reminded of who you are. God, we pray that we would not live for worldly things, but we will live for the things of heaven. That you will remind us of the great inheritance that we have. That you will help us to see your promises and trust in them and to not trust in ourselves. As we take this meal, we pray that for anyone who doesn't know you, that they would place their hope in you in a saving kind of way today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.